Okay, uh, so this is our Simon Don reading group. We're uh, continuing our reading of imagination and invention. We're on part three um, of the book, um, and we're still in uh, section A of that part, I believe. Um, uh, yes. Oh, no, sorry. We started section B of that part. So we're on page 108 of the, um, uh, of the translation. Uh, so last time... Um, um, I forget where exactly we started last time, but we, we looked at um, um, what, yeah, so the psychical level, the second level of Simon Don's cycle of the image um, um, in the second, uh, sorry, in the third phase of the cycle. So the, um, we're, we're dealing with images after the encounter with the object, and now we, we're looking at the, the psychical level um, of this cycle. Um, and so he starts with... Um, what is maybe a borderline phenomenon, so it's not clear whether this counts as a sort of psychical level phenomenon, uh, but it's what he calls consecutive effects. Uh, so this is like the sort of simplest example. This is just after images that you see after looking at a bright light. Um, so I think I mentioned this example um, last time, like if you're uh, lying in bed at night and you pick up your phone, uh, you look at your phone for a minute and then you turn it off, you, you have this after image of this sort of rectangular bright spot um, that sort of floats in front of your eyes. Uh, and if you pay attention to that rectangular after image, you, you'll see it actually changes color um, every you know, second or so. Um, and you, and you, can, you can even like track the sequence of colors, which should be um, uh, you know, a, a certain sequence. It's not just random colors, but like you, you have a sequence of colors that you'll see um, depending on what color the light was you were looking at. Um, um, and uh, yeah, so there, there were, I think, early 20th century, there were studies of like these different structures of after images, like what colors you see, depending on what color you look you, you were looking at, um, and you know how quickly they change and things like that. Um, and you can potentially have after images um, or something like an after image in other sense modalities as well. So he, Simon Don mentions like after if you hear a sudden, very loud sound, you know, an explosion or something like that, uh, or even if you go to a, a concert um, where the music is loud, um, and then afterwards you have this ringing sensation in your ears. Um, and, and so, of course, this is much less uh, structured and um, detailed than our visual after images, but you still have, um, yeah, this sort of auditory sensation that... Um, continues after the initial um, encounter with the object. Uh, but then I think what Simon Do is more interested in, what, what he wants to contrast with these consecutive images is um, um, uh, a more clearly psychological process, um, which is um, memory images, uh, in, or in, what he talks about, in immediate images and eidetic images. Um, so, um, one example of these immediate images is uh, the example that he cites uh, from another author um, where this person is sort of sitting at his desk uh, and he hears uh, a bell ringing in the distance uh, and he's not really paying attention. Uh, and then he notices after a few seconds that the bell seems to be ringing over and over again. Like he, he seems to hear uh, an extremely long sequence of, of um, bell ringing. And, and he thinks this, you know, this doesn't make sense. Like the bell wouldn't ring a thousand times or 20 times or whatever. Um, uh, and then he, he sort of, you know, goes back to his memory and, and pays more attention. And he realizes that um, 
he was actually imagining some of the like later pulls of the bell. Um, and so in this case, because you have an, uh, a very faint sound with very low localizability, it's just sort of vaguely in the distance, um, he was sort of, uh, it was sort of at the borderline between actually hearing it and uh, just imagining it. So he was like sort of able to confuse the, the um, imagined bell sound with the actual very faint bell sound. Uh, so here we have like an image, uh, you know, production of an image, this imaginary bell sound um, that is sort of uh, on the borderline or is very close to the borderline of um, actual sensation. Uh, so this is like one kind of image. This is the immediate image. Um, but then um, maybe a more interesting case is um, the uh, these eidetic images that he talks about. And like the uh, sort of example that we talked about a bit last time is chess players um, who, uh, you know, are many or there are there are many chess players who are capable of playing blindfolded. Uh, so there are uh, and and he. Uh, he cites Simon Bell cites um, uh, Ippolit Ten, who uh, had talked to some of these chess players and described what, how they did this operation. Um, and the one he he cites here, the this chess player, um, he would look at the pieces and get a, like a a very clear mental image of the pieces first uh, before the blindfold goes on. Um, and then uh, after he's blindfolded, he would like. Uh, visualize the movement of each of these pieces, the actual pieces with their, you know, color and shape and everything. Uh, and he had a very clear mental image of, you know, where all the pieces are. And if he ever sort of feels confused and he's not 100% sure, you know, if he is remembering correctly where the pieces are, he would sort of replay their movements over the course of the of the match so far, um, you know, visualizing again where each piece is. Uh, and uh, so again, these, these chess players have this very... Um, uh, structured, very um, detailed mental image that they can manipulate in their minds. They can, you know, see what would happen if I moved this piece here um, and, uh, you know, how would my opponent respond and so on. Um, so, uh, of course, most of us don't have this very detailed visual imaginative capacity. Um, but, uh, yeah, um, yes, we, we um, you know, all of us have at least some capacity of, you know, uh, imagining something you know producing a mental image of something and um um and then sort of uh manipulating that mental image in our minds you know to try to figure out you know what would happen if this uh if i did this or if i you know moved this uh uh element of the object in this way or or you know anything like that uh so this is a uh, obviously something that these chess players have an extraordinary capacity to do, um, but all of us have, you know, at least some capacity to do this. Uh, and then the question, the next question that Simon Don brings up is, you know, is this sort of eidetic memory capacity, this capacity to have these detailed visual images or or auditory images and so on, is this like um, a very sophisticated intellectual skill, or is it something uh, maybe not so sophisticated? Um, because if you think about it, like. Uh, a photograph, you can take a picture of the chessboard and then you have a, a very detailed record of um, of the where all the pieces are and, you know, it's extremely precise and everything. Or you could videotape, like, from above where all the pieces are over the course of a match. But, of course, the, the camera is a, not a sophisticated intellectual device. It, it's completely um, mechanical or, you know, just basic electronics. Um, it uh, it doesn't understand chats. It just records, you know, the movement of light uh, 
where you know it, it just the pixels respond to the light um, arriving on them and so on. Uh, so it, it could be the case that this memory performance of the chess players is is a similarly <clears throat> not um, like unsophisticated process. They're just sort of recording um, the events that happen and then they can replay it in their memory. Um, but uh, what Simon Don points to here is um, other types of eidetic performances that are maybe a, a little less um, uh, or that where the sophistication seems more clear than in maybe the chess playing example. Um, so he talks about Mozart, this story about Mozart, who um, um, heard a mass performed uh, in the Sistine Chapel uh, twice and then was able to write down the whole thing from memory. Um, and he did it so faithfully that um, people thought he had like stolen the the uh, score, which it was forbidden to reproduce. Um, and, uh, you know, Mozart, of course, is an extreme example, but there are you know other musicians who are capable of hearing a song once and then they can, re you know, play the whole thing from memory. Um, and uh, what Simon Dole suggests is that this type of... Uh, sort of memory performance has to do not with just a, a sort of pure recording function, but uh, a sort of grasp of the structure, um, in, you know, in the musical structure of a work uh, is, is sort of grasped. Um, uh, and, and that's what allows for the reproduction. And so like Mozart, of course, was not just someone who had this um, sophisticated memory uh, of, of music, but also a, a inventive musician himself. And so there's a sort of continuity between his capacity to uh, to grasp the structure of a musical work that he hears and his capacity to produce new works with interesting musical structure. Uh, and so, um, yeah, so this type of memory performance uh, is indicative of um, uh, of a more sophisticated uh, intellectual capacity, and it's not just sort of a pure recording function. Uh, so I think that's where we ended last time. Um, so if someone would like to pick up from page 108 and read, uh, let's see, yeah, to read up to the section break uh, or subsection break uh, of subsection three, uh, please. I can read. The immediate image is distinct from the eidetic image because very much akin to sensation and perception, it preserves concrete characteristics devoid of signification. In the eidetic image, while characteristics remain concrete, they are already selected in the direction, sens, of their typical and significant significative function. The absence of shadows or sculptural details in chess pieces, but conservation of the rules for movement, direction, and position. The characteristics preserved by the eidetic image represent so many anchor points between the subject and his environment. These anchor points secure ulterior paths of access to the objects of the milieu for the subject. They also offer elements for a combinatory activity. Indeed, Several authors who observed adeptism have noted the plasticity of these images. The starting point is provided by the initial state of the situation perceived effectively. Yet the subject may later act mentally on the eidetic image to impose transformations of it as if he were acting effectively on objects, writing a number in chalk on an imaginary blackboard, modifying the position of the pieces of an imagined chessboard through eidetic vision. When representation becomes uncertain, According to the testimony of chess players studied by Ten, the eidetic image may be restored through a recapitulation of the different successive modifications taking place during the game. Woodworth cites the research of uh, Urban Schitsch, I can't pronounce that, on eidetic images, as well as those of Jainch, 
and considers in opposition to Ten's opinion that the eidetic image differs notably from perception. It does not resemble a photograph since its details are not all simultaneously present. It develops progressively. When a question relating to a detail is asked, some amount of time may elapse before the detail is sufficiently clarified to provide an answer. Quote, small details reveal themselves while adjacent parts of the image remain blank. The quantity of details described in no way corresponds to the sum of what might be found in an actual image. Unquote. Kluver, 1930. The plasticity of the eidetic image is such that some subjects can modify it willfully or under the influence of suggestion. Objects may change form or color and move within the image. Finally, among children, we can note that subjects obtain the good images only of scenes of interest to them. Eidetic images register the significant objects of a situation and the significant traits of these particular objects. In this way, they are quite different from photographs or paintings by artists who are interested in the relationship of light and shadow without emphasizing the salient lines of remarkable objects. Woodworth, Psychologie Experimentale. For Woodworth, the eidetic image is a phenomenon of memory rather than of perception. It displays the characteristic of nesic images, not those of perception. This conclusion is rather close to Binet's study of the memory of chess players, which discovered that it contains the representation of the moves the pieces can make. Quote, the bishop is not a baroquely shaped piece. It is essentially a piece that moves obliquely, unquote. We might say that the eidetic image is already, in a very elementary sense, a symbol, since it outlines perception and stylizes it according to the subject preserving the memory. The fact that the eidetic image deserves to be studied as a nesic phenomenon removes nothing from the particular character of its acquisition. We might perhaps note, while waiting for further research, the continuity that exists between the phenomena of imprinting imprint, and those of eidetism. Intense situations triggering a high degree of vigilance favor the acquisition of an eidetic image which, by the way, may not concern directly the object generating the emotion or the heightened vigilance. Hence, during a phone conversation bearing important news and necessitating precise and attentive answers, one may acquire through eidetic vision the memory of a visual detail without any logical connection with the content of the communication in which requires no active visual perception. The image of the threads of a screw on a phone receiver, a detail of a piece of furniture, etc., most often, eidetic images acquired during an intense situation are linked to the central and significant object around which the situation is organized. But if the situation is abstract and symbolic and concerns only one of the senses as in a phone conversation, the registered image may not be connected to the central and significant object, which demonstrates that the quote-unquote hot situation generates a state comparable to that of the critical periods favoring imprinting and plant for the various forms of perceptual sensorial activity. This, this shift at the end here to uh, eidetic images that are acquired in these situations of high vigilance is interesting because I understood the eidetic image to be, as he describes it earlier, uh, um, sort of a manipul manipulable image that has more to do with the uh, the I guess 
deep familiarity or expert knowledge of the the subject in which the image is created with the situation. Um, and in both the case of Mozart and the chess player, the chessboard or the the score is manipulable, I think, in a sense. But that's there's this kind of displacement of the the symbolic aspect of the traumatic phone call, I guess, and the image that's associated with it in this last example. Yeah, I think here maybe the so the difference is on the one hand we have um, a more sort of um, intellectual use of uh, an eidetic image in the case of the chess player and and you know even Mozart um, like he's able to sort of analyze the the piece as he's listening to it. Um, uh, so it's it's and and um, and then in relation to this mental image, they can like manipulate it. Um, you know they can think you know. What, what would happen if I moved this chess piece here or, you know, they can change the color in their imagination and so on. Um, so this is like here, the subject is sort of um, at a remove from the image. They can they're sort of um, uh, manipulating the image without any sort of emotional investment in it. Uh, but then the other type of eidetic image that Simon Dong sort of uh, points out at the end of this section is, yeah, the, these images that arise as a result of a, an emotionally intense experience of some kind. Um, and I think likely this is more um, more often the case with negative experiences. Um, uh, so like this phone call example, we can imagine like you hear you know, you know, the news that uh, a loved one has died or something like that, uh, or you're having an argument over the phone with your partner or something, um, something very emotionally intense um, in that sense. Um, and then while you're on the phone, you're sort of staring at like, I don't know, the the grain of the wood on the desk or something like that. And, and this image, which has nothing to do with the content of the conversation, gets sort of imprinted in your mind. Um, uh, and, and, and so he compares this to the imprinting process that we looked at uh, a few weeks ago with um, uh, uh, birds um, and some other animals that, you know, in the early hours of their life or minutes even, they sort of attach themselves to a, a figure that um, they take to be their parent. Um, and I think maybe the connection we can make between these two types of eidetic image um, is, uh, you know, by means of what he points out a little bit earlier, uh, namely that uh, the subject um, only uh, retains that aspect of the situation that is sort of interesting to them. So the chess player, of course, is very interested in chess. They, um, you know, uh, have an intense interest in chess, and chess is something that they um, are passionate about. Uh, so they like focus on the chessboard. But if you ask them, like, you know, what type of clothes is your opponent wearing? Um, you know, after you blindfolded them, they might not be able to answer that question because that's something that they um, don't care about. Um, and uh, so, likewise, in the uh, uh, in these intense um, conversation on the phone, uh, you have um, this sort of emotional investment in the situation. Uh, but here, because it's uh, a sort of abstract symbolic um, operation, as opposed to like you know the manipulation of pieces on a board, um, and and also because it's uh, uh, a sort of experience that only um, affects one sensory modality, it means the other sensory modalities, like vision in this case are able to sort of freely um, join or um, connect with the experience. 
so um, these two types of eidetic image are maybe not so different after all, even though they, of course, have their differences. Um, but in each case, it's the subject's sort of investment in the, uh, the situation, like the particular part of the situation or aspect of the situation that they find interesting is the one that um, um, sort of brings about the possibility of an eidetic imprinting. Um, uh, and, you know, in, in the sort of normal case, it will be actually the, um, the, the content of the um, eidetic image will sort of correspond with the aspects of the situation that they found interesting. But in cases like the phone conversation, um, it's, it's sort of the experience as a whole um, that brings about this eidetic uh, imprinting effect. And, and then it, it can be like another sense modality that has nothing to do with the actual um, content of the experience that is uh, remembered. So yeah, it's again the, this sort of um, intense interest that brings about the imprinting experience. And then that experience can proceed in different ways depending on the type of situation uh, that's, uh, that's bringing about that experience. Okay, uh, so let's go on to the next subsection. Um, this is a long one, so we'll read um, about a page or so if I can get a volunteer. Um, yeah, so from the beginning of subsection three. Everyone's shy today. Uh, okay, I can read the, this next one, but uh, hopefully someone else will um, volunteer for the, the one after that. Okay, subsection three. Memory images, notion of a reproductive imagination, imaginative types, generic images. The memory image is that which may reappear at any time after the end of the perceptual situation to which it is related. The image is then the, the occasion of a representation or a revival, the vivissance, characterizing the secondary state and differentiating it from the primary state. The latter may, being extended in rather sorry being extended in rather than represented by the consecutive image and the immediate image. A theoretical question arises: In what way is the memory image different from the eidetic image? Practically speaking, the nucleus of the eidetic image may function as an active center for a complex memory image. A famous example of Proust's Madeleine may be analyzed within the purview of eidetism, for theoretically nothing prevents such perceptual sensorial imprinting phenomena to extend beyond the visual category. Moreover, other olfactory eidetic images can be found in Proust, such as the smell of gas for automobiles, which forms the nucleus of a multitude of visual and oral imprintings related to travel, the horizon of the road, and visited landscapes. According to Proust's description, revival occur occurs many years later through the intermediary of this smell in a very different situation than travel. The subject smells gas fumes rising from the street below while he wakes up in a Parisian hotel. We are extending the use of the term, quote-unquote, eidetic. Originally, it applied only to the visual category. The existence of an active eidetic center within the memory image faces an oft-repeated and now classic argument, that of the impossibility of enumerating the components of the represented object. More specifically, if a person claiming, claiming he quote-unquote sees the pantheon in his imagination is asked to count the columns he quote-unquote sees, such enumeration is generally impossible. On the basis of this incapacity, certain authors have contested the concrete character of memory images, taking the descriptions of such images as sheer nonsense. Yet the demonstration is far from, from conclusive. Researchers who have studied the various operations of perceptual analysis, particularly Professor Postel in building a reading machine, have recognized the importance of, a concrete, of concrete supports, of arresting points that allow the analyzing gaze to secure reference points in the object. It is almost impossible to count the bars of a metal fence or the rows of a brick wall without reference points. When the natural heterogeneities of the object display such features in themselves, a rusty bar, a thinner bar, etc., the perceptual analysis is easy. In a real object seen in a concrete situation, local heterogeneities may be important and progressive, 
accompanying and guiding perceptual activity. The columns of the pantheon when placed in a circle are all lit in a different way. Moreover, the apparent intervals separating them increase progressively because of perspective from the sides to the center from the viewpoint of the observer. The resistance offered by these reference points, anchors of an analyzing perceptual activity, is no longer present in the image because the image is already abstract and quote-unquote purer than perception. In the mental image of the pantheon, there are no longer shadows and details of distinct hues that individualize each column, providing an internal structure to the series. By contrast, the enumeration of components in an eidetic image remains possible when these components are differentiated by their signifying functions, as in a written word. Its letters considered as letters are different from each other, not only in perception, but in the image. Researchers from the second half of the 19th century noticed individual differences with respect to the vividness and precision of memory images. First, we may, we may wonder whether everyone possesses this capacity of semi-concrete mental representation to the same degree. However, subjective descriptions and analyses require delicate interpretation if one seeks to use them as an absolute basis for the evaluation of the degree of quote-unquote concreteness of images within various subjects. On the other hand, a typology is likely to be less arbitrary when it is a matter of comparing in the same person the degree of vivacity and precision of images relating to various sensorial categories. Uh, I'll stop here because the next paragraph is a long one. Uh, so again, we're looking at... Um, so now we're looking more at memory images as such. So um, these eidetic images as a as a sort of instance of memory images. And the question is, to what extent um, are these uh, are memory images in general, uh, including uh, these eidetic images that we looked at in the last section, uh, to what extent are they um, accurate representations of the worlds uh, and so this example of the columns of the Pantheon, this is one that Sartre had um, talked about as well. And he, I don't, I don't know if that's specifically who Simondon was thinking of here, but he gave uh, this same argument, the one that Simondon rejects, um, namely that if you um, ask someone to imagine the Pantheon or you know any similar building that they're familiar with, um, and and then ask them to count the number of columns in their mental image. Most most of the time, they they say, you know, I can't, you know, like you can't sort of imagine the image and then count the number of columns in your mental image. Um, and and so Sartre takes this to be a a sign that the mental image that there's no such thing as an image as such. There's only imaging consciousness. Um, so it's not that you as a subject have a sort of internal object which is an image sort of floating in front of you it's instead that you um are directing your consciousness towards the pantheon in this imaging way um uh and simon don rejects this argument um and he gives an alternate explanation of why why it is that we can't um count the number of columns in our mental image and so he says in the uh so when you look at even um a real physical object in front of you um you know, not a mental image, but you're looking at a brick wall, for example, and you want to count how many rows there are, it's actually quite difficult to to do that without losing track of where you are. Um, you know, as long as the rows are are all the same color and, and you know, the same shape of bricks and everything, um, it's, it's quite difficult. Or if you think of, like, a fence and you want to count how many, um, uh, you know, uh, wires there are in the fence, uh, it's a sort of chain link fence or something, you want to count the wires, it's extremely difficult. To do that if they're all the same. Uh, so what Simondon argues is that um, when you look at the real pantheon uh, and you you look at the um, the different columns, you have um, 
uh, a certain heterogeneity of the columns because the angle of illumination is different. So you, the, each column has a slightly different um, pattern of light and shadow on it, uh, a different hue of, of the uh, sunlight striking it. Um, and then also the angle uh, of perception, like you're, you're always looking at it from one direction or another. And so the angle, be uh, the visual angle between the different columns is different. Um, so you have this sort of heterogeneity when you're looking at the real image um, or the real object, I should say. Um, this heterogeneity makes it possible to count the the columns um, when when the object is in front of you. Whereas in the mental image, you don't have like when you just picture an object, it, you don't picture it under any particular illumination. Um, you don't picture it with shadows. Um, uh, you don't picture it from any particular angle. The, so the, the mental image is more abstract than the um, physical object, the, the perception of the physical object. And it's, it's precisely because of this that you don't have that heterogeneity between the different elements of the image, and that makes it impossible to count them. Uh, so this, again, it's an alternate explanation of why, why we can't count the columns in our mental image. Um, so... Uh, and I think it's a it's an interesting um, suggestion. Um, I, I'm not sure um, whether it's you know 100% convincing or not, but uh, I think this is an interesting suggestion of uh, and and pointing out the difficulty of counting um, homogeneous real elements like you know the uh, rows of a brick wall, for example. I think is an interesting uh, contribution as well. Everyone's quiet today. Um, okay, so if there's no other. Um, comments or questions about that bit, we can go on to the next page. So can I get a volunteer to read from the bottom of 111? Uh, I can read. Can you hear me? Yes. Is this on this differential aspect? Yes, exactly. This differential aspect, long noted in literature and arts, was first signaled by Fechner in 1860 and studied by Galton in 1880. Asking subjects to evoke image of a specific object, Fechner registered various uh, variations of aptitude in the evocation. Galton devised a breakfast table questionnaire. Subjects were invited to evoke the image of their table when they had their breakfast in the morning, noting the degree of definition of objects, the relative brightness of the scene, the character of colors, distinct or natural, etc. The scholars and scientists interrogated by Galton tended to answer they had no mental image. Yet other responses showed that certain objects, one or two for instance among those placed on the table, remained clear in the memory image of several subjects. After having sought to establish an inverse correlation between the vivacity of imagination and intellectual abilities, investigators continuing Galton's research turned towards the study of imaginative types, according to the various aptitudes of each subject, for visual, oral, and other types of imagery. Charcot's studies of aphasia have, so have shown that a a class of images is predominant depending on the various individuals examined. Systematizing his observations, Charcot divided the imaginative types into four. The visual type, the oral type, the motor type, and the mixed type. The, the visual type recalls a text by re representing the page on which it is printed. In the process of learning, these types rely on spatial schematization, using illustrations, colorful reference, and diagrams. Moreover, they tend to convert the data coming from other senses into visual representation, and if they have a poetic bent, they invoke metaphors expressing this conversation. Hugo writes, the laces of the sound chiseled by the, the fife. Hugo used engravings and ink drawings with strongly contrasting shadow and light to translate his vision of complex scenes and situations with non-visual components. For instance, a storm around a castle nestled on the side of a craggy hill. He stated that abstract ideas evoked for him 
them concrete images. The law gives the image of red-robed judges. Color is the opposition of the green of a plant with the red of a fabric. Form is a round block, a woman's shoulder. Uh, quoted by uh, Cuvillier, 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 after Ribot, Ideas Generals, in page 133. Sorry for pronunciation. The visual type may become diversified according to the predominance of the concrete representations of forms, colors, geometrical relationships, or typographical signs. Almost blind, Michelangelo used touch to recognize and admire statues. A painter like Delacroix grants priority in his work to search to a search for colors, acting not only as elements but as image, because they provide the atmosphere for a scene. See, for instance, his Femme, femme d'al- d'Alger painting drenched in blonde light that shows showers, objects, and figures. Uh, another Delacroix is titled uh, Bataille en, entre un cheval by et un cheval bébrun dans une écurie. <laughs> une écurie. Uh, my French pronunciation again, horrible, sorry. Of course, we take into account the romantic culture of the time. Color is a manifesto against the classicism of the line. Hugo writes, I placed a red bonnet upon the old dictionary. Yet color has for Delacroix a significant, a significant sig- signifying force that is not present among other painters of his era. Concrete visual geometric memory corresponds to the kind of feats found among chess players. As for the visual typographic type, it is found among people who see mentally each word uttered as if it were printed. Bourdon, in his Intelligence, page 44, cites the case of a student who saw the words he spoke in written or printed form, generally in larger font than those of other people. Renald in 1912 showed that the properly photographic image of a word is very rare. During his experiments, he never encountered a subject truly capable of reading the letters of a word backward out of a mental image. Generally, subjects asked to do so complain that letters do not stay in place and they try reading backward. Subjects with strong aptitude for evoking visual images succeed in reading back- <clears throat> backward after finding a process for decomposing a word into several groups of syllables and inverting each syllable separately. By contrast, subjects who do not have solid visual images ultimately rely on a less efficacious process, such as spelling the word from beginning to end repeatedly, eliminating one letter each time. The sequential unidirectional method is comparable to that which could be used on an oral image, but sound sequences are very difficult to reverse by acting on a mental image, since it is only abstractly that the course of time may be reversed. Those rare cases where subjects, generally children, show themselves capable of reading a word backward in eidetic vision, along an unfamiliar word, for instance, in a foreign tongue, can be seen as illustrations of the properties of the eidetic image as such. Such properties in ordinary mental images are limited, generally, but even for subjects gifted in visual em- imagery, to the clear view of a reversible group of two or three letters at the most. Right. Um, yeah, so uh, Angus has posted in the chat a couple of, of the uh, paintings that Simono mentioned. Um, um, it sounds like, um, just from my quick search, it looks like Simono might be misciting the title of one of them. Um, so the, so the, the second one, Bataille entre un cheval bé et un cheval bé brun dans une écurie. Um, um, so in, in English, that would be um, a battle between a bay horse and a bay brown horse in a stable. Um, so the idea that Simon Dolan is getting at here is that this this painting has this very um, sort of visually evocative title. Um, but the title that I found um, was Chevaux Arabes Battant Dans Une Écurie. Um, so Arab horses fighting in a stable. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe Simon Dolan 
maybe this was an alternate title or maybe Simone was just misremembering the title or, or um, I'm not sure exactly what has happened um, in, in this case. Um, but yeah, so the idea here, um, so yeah, there, there's this typology of mental images um, that is being discussed here. So the, the, the idea is that um, different people have different um, sort of types of mental images uh, that predominate in their mental life. So certain people um, have like a, a visually oriented mental imagery. Um, so uh, he cites these cases of people who, whenever they think of a concept or a word or whatever, they always have a, an image of what that concept denotes or some image associated with that concept. Um, and uh, yeah, so this this sort of typology, I think, um, might be a little um, suspect. Uh, I know that, um, for example, this is this would be connected with um, the whole idea of learning types that you know certain people are visual learners and other people are auditory learners and so on. But um, my sort of very limited understanding is that that theory has been largely debunked. Um, that uh, it doesn't seem to be the case that. Um, that there are people that are sort of predominantly visual learners versus others who are um, who are auditory learners or or whatever. Um, um, but uh, yeah, it'd be interesting to um, to sort of do a more systematic study of people's um, imaginative abilities and uh, you know the extent to which people are capable of um, producing visual images versus auditory images. And and you know it, it does seem plausible that there might be some variation between people. Um, in terms of like which kind, which kind of image they're able to produce most easily or um, most effectively. Uh, so yeah, that, that's um, sort of the idea here. And then he goes into the first type, the first um, of these types, uh, which is the visual image. Um, um, and, and yeah, so he goes through a few different sort of properties of the visual images. And so one of them is the ability to sort of break down the image into parts. Uh, and uh, in particular, in the case of um, a word, the ability to spell it backwards. So if you have like a very clear visual image of the word, um, then you should be able to sort of look at the letters and just read them backwards. Because if you are looking at a, a printed word on a page or you know a written word on the page, you can just read it backwards. Um, you know, it's a little bit more difficult than reading it normally, but you can just spell out the the letters, um, just looking at them one at a time. Um, but it's actually quite difficult to sort of um, visualize a word, like have a, a mental visual image of the word in front of you, and then read the letters backwards. Uh, and um, according to this one researcher, he's, he, he says that he never, he was never able to find someone who was um, capable of doing this task, uh, you know, in, in an effective way. Um, um, but yeah, it's uh, um, what what he suggests is that some people actually are able to perform or something like this task. But what they do is they sort of break down the word into pieces. So they they sort of read um, um, they read the uh, uh, like first two letters and then they go on to the next two letters and so on. Um, but yeah, um, again, we're just going through some of the properties of these uh, different types of images and and. Uh, um, sort of trying to understand what exactly one of these images uh, consists in. That's, that's sort of the task that we're dealing with here. I guess I find it surprising that uh, the example for the visual memory is this, uh, this spelling the word backwards. 
is that would seem to be more of a, I guess the idea is that you, you can picture the word spelled out and, you know, in your, in your memory or, um, in your mind's eye, so to speak. And, uh, just read the symbols that appear to you backwards. Yeah. I think maybe if it's like a word, a real word in a language that, you know, it might be easier, but if we picture like just a sequence of letters, like, I don't know, five random letters in a row, you look at it for 10 seconds and then, then, uh, and then, you know, the letters disappear off the screen and, uh, the experimenter says, okay, now you need to visualize the letters that you saw and, um, read them backwards. Um, I think that would be a pretty difficult task. Um, uh, so partly I think the knowledge of the word, like, uh, you know, of course we've seen most English words or the words in a language that we're, we're familiar with, we've seen them thousands of times. So it, it, we have this familiarity with the spelling. So we're not purely relying on just the mental image, but our, our knowledge of the language is sort of filling in the gaps for us. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think maybe this task would be more like it would be, um, um, yeah, sort of the the pure visualizing task would be like, yeah, a sequence of letters um, that are not a word in the language that we speak. Um, I think that's that would be the uh, the more sort of precise version of this task. Yeah, it's interesting, actually, that you bring up misplacing your keys, because um, so before we started recording, we were talking about, um, well, I won't go into it too much, but anyway, the, we're talking about the predictive processing approach to um, psychology and um, in particular, Andy Clark's book, um, The Experience Machine. And in that book, he gives a little anecdote about how he, uh, um, you know, was sort of about to leave the house and he, he, you know, picks up his keys, but then he has to go back and get something else. So he puts his keys down um, and he comes back and he can't find his keys. Uh, he's, a, he's thinking, you know, I know I just put them down on this table a minute ago, um, but I can't find them. Uh, and then he suddenly remembers that um, he changed the fob on his keychain from a yellow fob to a pink one or something like that. Um, um, and, uh, and then as soon as he remembers that, he's able to see the, the keys on the table. Um, so uh, I think here, um, I think this is connected to... Um, um, the types of images that we're talking about here with Simon Dome, because, um, yeah, we, um, in our visual perception or probably in other forms of perception as well, we have, uh, um, like if you're, if you have the task of like finding a certain object, you have to have a, a, a mental image of what the object is that you're looking for. Uh, and that sort of acts as like a spotlight on anything that sort of resembles that object. So if you're, if you're looking through, um, the objects on your table and you're thinking, uh, or the image that you have in your head is this image of a keychain with a yellow fob on it, and you don't see anything yellow, then then you're sort of like, you know, you can't see anything that matches your image that you're looking for. Um, but then when you suddenly remember, oh, actually, the keychain has a pink fob on it, uh, then the suddenly the pink fob stands out. Um, and uh, yeah, so the uh, visual attention, uh, or attention sort of plays a role in perception in a way that... Um, um, maybe it would be surprising if you think of perception as sort of a passive process of just taking in information from the world. Uh, it's instead a kind of um, sifting process, I guess. Um, uh, and and this applies. Uh, and um, so in the case of like purely mental images, like, um, uh, yeah, so this, this sort of makes sense of why we can't um, manipulate mental images in the same way that we can uh, visual images in front of us. So like it's much harder to read a sequence of letters backwards than it than it would be to um, 
to um, you know visualize a sequence of letters and then read them backwards uh, in your mind. Um, and uh, and so it's partly because um, our sort of um, 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 yeah our our attention is part of the process of perception, and so like you you have to um, like what you're attending to in an image will modify the image itself um, and make certain parts appear uh, and other parts sort of disappear. Um, so yeah, that's it's a very complicated process of attention visualization. Um, you know, comparing your image to what you're seeing and and then sort of figuring out whether they match and so on um so yeah it's it's um there's like still research today into a lot of these aspects of things that simon don was talking about here kind of an interesting choice to include hugo in the visual image category because obviously uh you know you would think he had a pretty strong uh oral memory but i think later on he also talks about like mixed types so maybe that's what he has in mind yeah, I think so. The idea here um, is that for ego, there is like this um, visual image of any particular concept that he has in mind, uh, like the image of the like when when the, he's thinking of the concept law, he sees the image of the judge in the robes and so on. Um, and um, I think you know certain writers have um, maybe more of a visual bent in that they they. Um, to evoke a certain emotion or to describe a situation or, you know, a, a certain concept or whatever, they always describe it in visual terms. They, they might, um, like they might have a very vivid mental image that they depict of, you know, what the, the person in the story looks like, or, you know, what sort of facial expression they have or whatever. Um, whereas other writers maybe have less, uh, like visual, less of a concrete visual, um, depiction of the situation um and uh so ugo like has uh at least according to simon no, I, i'm not that familiar with ugo but like yeah so this um sort of um yeah he uses these visual images to convey ideas and emotions in a way that other writers maybe don't do uh at least not to the same extent yeah i remember uh i think ezra pound distinguishes between poets who are uh he calls it phanopoetic, so more image-oriented, or mellopoetic, which is uh, uh, more musical and sound-oriented. And then I think there was a third category, uh, logopoetic, which is uh, more like conceptual than either of the other two orientations. But um, maybe Simon Don would say that Hugo is a uh, phanopoetic poet. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, I, I mean, again, you can probably divide these categories in different ways depending on what your um, sort of particular purpose is. But yeah, I think it, there are certain writers, like someone like Malarmé, for example, um, it's clear that for him, the like he's much more conceptual um, as a like his poems are very abstract um, and often like hard to visualize and and so on compared to um, other poets that might be more. Uh, um, yeah, visually, they might, you know, describe visual images and then others who, who um, you know, um, work with the sounds and, and the sound is sort of the key element of the poem. Uh, of course, any, like, any poem or any decent poem will involve all three elements and some sort of interaction between them. But uh, you can probably, you know, make a differentiation between different poets in terms of, like, which side is predominant and which ones are secondary. Um, 
and and this might line up to some extent at least with the um the typology of imaginative types that that Simondo is pointing to here like um it would be plausible um though maybe not um easy to prove but it would be plausible that poets who um themselves have a predominantly visual imagination would um use uh visual images more in their poems uh and and likewise um um yeah for the other uh senses and uh type types of imagination so um yeah it, it would be i don't know how you would go about trying to prove this um especially for you know poets or authors who have been dead for decades or centuries um uh but yeah it's uh um, one of the sort of corners of the mind that maybe will never be fully cleared up, but uh, is interesting to think about. Okay, uh, so we can go on to the next page here. Uh, if we can get a volunteer to read from the bottom of 113. Uh, I can read. We should note also that the superiority of the quote-unquote visual goes no further than the reversal of a left-to-right sequence into a right-to-left sequence. The visual image is not complete enough to allow reading in all directions, even if the subject enjoys a very developed visual tendency. This is what the exper experiment of the square of letters made of 16 or 25 letters placed in a square that must be learned by reading in the usual manner. Binet, Fernand, Muller have found that after learning such a square, a subject has difficulty reciting it from bottom to top, and even more difficulty with diagonal lines. According to Muller, the method used to overcome this difficulty is the same for a quote-unquote visual or quote-unquote oral type. It consists in using groupings and localizations, and all subjects work in the same way. The quote-unquote oral type is uh, described by Binet as corresponding to the translation in names and words of the signs used for a mental operation without graphic support. To add mentally, oral types repeat verbally the names of the numbers. Binet also notes that while when learning a text, persons of this type engrave in their mind the, sounds of the sound of the words, there is a considerable set of mnemonic devices using sound images, the list of the names of Roman emperors, the list of pairs of cranial nerves, etc. The structuring of sequences, rhymes, assonances, rhythm, facilitates memorization and allows for evocation to be picked up at an articulation point, stanza or verse, without starting the recitation of the text from the beginning. The existence of inseparable blocks repeated in a text, like nouns with their natural qualifier, favors the fixation of sound images. It is found foremost in texts composed when writing was not widespread. This quote-unquote pharmacon, as Plato says, that is, this drug against forgetting, caused the loss of use of memorization devices without material support, among which were all the recurrent aspects of sound sequences so evident in poetry and music. In fact, a spoken text or complex sound sequence, in a spoken text or complex sound sequence, not everything gives rise equally to a mental image. There are privileged structures that even the subject less gifted for oral images retain without alterations, uh, such as Rodrigue à tout du cœur, tout Tout autre que mon père les prouverait sur leur. That was a quote. This aptitude for becoming image is not directly linked to a theoretical, abstract, or conceptual meaning. The title of Hugo's poem, quote, Oceano Knox, unquote, 
easily forms an oral image without recourse to its signification. Quote, nine on the ocean, unquote. In La Parole Interieure, Egger affirms that any thought is accompanied by a kind of inner noise, which is like a mental speech. Without repeating the example of Mozart cited above, we can cite that of Beethoven, who, having become deaf, rehearsed internally enormous symphonies, or that of Mendelssohn, who was able from childhood to accompany by memory entire operas. In literature, the role of noises and sounds varies according to authors and schools. Daudet has much tenderness towards noises, sounds, and quote-unquote picturesque words that create images. Onomatopoeias abound in his conte, in which we find what the Gestalt school called quote-unquote implicit meanings integrated in the structure of protagonists and topographical names. Tiste, Veden, Pamperegust, etc. Maybe I'll stop there because the next is a new type. Um, yeah, I mean, this, this section seems pretty straightforward. In contrast to the visual type, the oral type remembers in terms of uh, sort of structured groups of sounds as opposed to uh, as opposed to, you know, visual bunchings or groups. Yeah, and this is something that I think we may have talked about during um, individuation. I can't remember where it came up, but uh, so he mentioned, Simondal mentions here um, the sort of structuring of poems as a mnemonic device. And uh, so this is something that was identified by, um, uh, I think, if I remember correctly, it was, uh, I forget his name now, but he was working on um, uh, sort of legends or song, folk songs in um, um, what was then Yugoslavia. Um, um, and uh, um, he identified this sort of device of like um, epithets. So like uh, a certain noun has a certain adjective that goes with it, or a, a person's name has like a, a sort of uh, a couple words of description that go with it. And and he realized at some point that this sort of matches the structure of epithets in the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, so you have like swift-footed Achilles. So Achilles is always described or often described as swift-footed. Um, so you have these sort of fixed phrases with a certain metrical structure, and you can sort of use them as bricks to build up a line um, uh, that has the right metrical structure. Um, and uh, and so this this sort of process um, helps to make the poem um, memorizable. And and so like because each component has a certain structure, you can uh, remember where it fits in uh, in the line and uh, and how each line is constructed and so on. Uh, and then, uh, of course, there's Plato's famous um, um, criticism of writing that uh, it sort of destroys the cap the capacity of memory, um, which is you know probably right. Um, you know, in societies where written language is um, is widely used, we tend not to memorize texts in the same way, or you know, poems or songs or whatever in the same way that uh, um, non uh, non reading societies do. Um, uh, but yeah, so the the idea of this section essentially is um, that yeah, there's this oral type of image that um, has to be structured in the same way that a visual image has to be structured. Like you you can't sort of evoke a visual image, uh, or you don't have a, a a very clear visual image of like a fence with no um, uh, difference between the the different wires that make up the fence. You have to, if you want to have a clear visual image, it has to be of a, a face or something that has um, structure to it. 
And then likewise, in the case of auditory images, um, it's the structure that allows you to remember, uh, you know, a long sequence uh, of sounds that make up a poem or uh, a musical work. And then one other bit, um, just as a sort of aside, but uh, right before that bit about the oral image, he talks about um, the visual images, uh, the task with the square of letters. So you, you give a subject um, a sequence of 16 or 24 letters, uh, sorry, 25 letters um, in a square shape. Um, so four by four or five by five. Um, you, um, and then you let them read each line one by one. And then you ask them to uh, to sort of remember the the visual image of the square, um, and even if even subjects who are capable of say reading the lines out of you know from their visual memory, like if you ask them read the third line or or whatever, um, if you ask them you know read the the uh, third column from bottom to top or read uh, the the main diagonal. Um, these are like extremely difficult tasks that people are essentially incapable of doing. Uh, whereas, of course, if you had the square in front of you, you could, you know, very easily just read the the line from bottom to top or read the diagonal. Um, and this reminds me, actually, I uh, recently visited, or you know, a couple months ago now, I visited the uh, British Library um, when I was in the UK, and uh, I saw a copy of a poem there, a Chinese poem that. Um, is written in uh, this exactly in this square form, uh, which means that you can read it, and, and this is also a property of the Chinese language and writing system. But you can read this poem in any direction. So um, it's actually like I think three thousand different poems that you can read uh, depending on where you start and and like what direction you read each line. Um, uh, so all the different combinations of this um, of the these. Uh, characters make up, uh, you know, a, a sequence that makes some sort of sense. Um, uh, so yeah, and, and this, of course, you know, this is only possible because you have a visual representation. Like you couldn't write a, a sort of combinatory poem uh, in an oral society that didn't have writing. It wouldn't really make sense, and you wouldn't be able to, um, you know, read a poem in uh, an arbitrary order. Um, without having the the visual support to um, to allow for this kind of reading, so yeah, I think it's an interesting um, uh, example of this. You know, the difference between a visual um, uh, support, like a, a written text, and uh, a visual image or an auditory image um, that we have in our minds. This point about um, oral memory makes me think of the poetry of Edgar Allan Poe, which I think is uh, kind of often unfairly dismissed, um, but uh, Poe was uh, very conscious of his use of um, certain consonants like L, M, and N, which he considered more beautiful sounding than like plosive consonants like K and T, um, which is why, you know, his poems repeat names like Ulalum, for instance. Um, yeah, that's... I don't have anything else to say about that, but I'll post a link in the chat of a good recitation of one of my favorite, uh, sorry, uh, Poe, not Pound. I don't know if I've said Pound, but... Uh, no, you said Poe. Yeah, I got it. Oh, good. Um, yeah, uh, that's interesting. Um, and, and you can also connect this um, this sort of sound symbolism or sound um, aesthetics, I guess, um, with Tolkien's... Um, uh, invented languages, the Elvish languages and the other languages, like he has very um, clear um, like the the um, 
sort of character of the people that speak the language is supposed to be reflected in the sound of the language itself. So the, the Elvish languages are, are supposed to be sound beautiful and the other, the Orcs language is supposed to sound uh, ugly um, and so on. So yeah, uh, he had a, obviously a very clear um, um, uh, sort of sound image of like what is, uh, what is depicted by different sounds or what, um, what sort of symbolism different sounds um, or what emotions different sounds evoke. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's also, I think, very hard to study this in a systematic way. Like there's probably a lot of individual variation in terms of like, you know, what sounds certain people find beautiful and which ones other people find ugly and so on. Um, um, but uh, yeah, it would be very interesting to try to um, like do, do this in a systematic way and see like, are there similarities between people in terms of which sounds they find beautiful and are there differences between speakers of different languages in terms of which sounds they find beautiful and so on. Um, yeah, it would, it would be an interesting uh, type of research to do. Okay, uh, so let's go on to the next page. Uh, I believe the, let me just see the, yeah, the bit about motor types goes on to the next page. So if you can read up to, yeah, just uh, up to the end or the, the first full paragraph on 116. Um, so if someone could read that bit for us. No volunteers again. Okay, I will read this one. Okay. The imaginative, quote, motor type is sometimes associated, according to some researchers, with the, quote, oral type because there is a link between oral representation and the motions of pronouncing a word or emitting a sound. It should be noted, however, that the span of the register of the human voice is not as broad as that of hearing, even though the maximum of oral sensitivity corresponds to the sounds habitually present in verbal expression and singing. Hence, coupling between phonation and hearing is not total. Stricker has studied in detail the, quote, unquote, motor type in his work titled Du langage et de la musique. Vicker himself claimed to be a typical case. His image words, rather than being visual or oral, were almost all kinesthetic, made of images and perhaps also of sensations and of articulatory emotions. Vicker devised a test showing the importance of the motor component of a verbal image by having subjects try to think of words that can be pronounced only with a relatively closed mouth, such as bubble, mutter, wisp, but constrained in advance to keeping their mouth open. Some subjects were unable to imagine these words, which proves that the verbal images are essentially motor. An oral type, to the contrary, can imagine these words while keeping their mouth open. We should add that the motor part in certain images, such as words or numbers, may be substantial for some subjects. In order to recall how a word is spelled, some people need to write it down after having mobilized the concrete register of kinesthetic representations through a few twists of the wrist, without actually writing. Uh, a bit like clearing, one, clearing one's voice before singing. Naturally, in such cases, one may speak of a habit. Yet how are we to distinguish exactly a motor habit from a motor image? The real question we should be asking, actually, is that of the legitimacy of a parallel established between the active content of images and the perceptual content. There are, of course, receptions linked to movement and allowing for its adaptation to objects, to the situation, motor and perceptual motor control. Yet perception in no way exhausts the reality of the motion of the body proper. Perceived motion is much more essentially the motion of objects in the perceptual field. In this regard, there may be images of movement in the visual category, others in the sound category, and yet others in the tactile category. It is not solely the sensory organ receiving, the information, receiving information that determines on its own a category of mental images, but rather other features related to the situation, staple and simultaneous configuration, irreversible sequences, and recurrences. It will be important to analyze the characteristics of the imagery in a less sensorial and more formalized way, and more logically by treating images as groups of signals. We would then see that the index of movement, stability, duration, alteration, changes in the situation's configuration, affects a large number of images. 
Michaud's study of the perception of causality allows us to, to discern a few types of images of movement, slithering, shock, pursuit, that appear in perceptual categories and may also be preserved in mental representation. The kinesthetic image of movement is nonetheless clear in the representation of certain objects whose use involves a highly defined gesture, such as a faucet, a nut, a board, the rotating disc of a telephone, a doorbell button. The vividness of the images of movement linked to these objects shows up in the tendency to act on these objects without a real need, which prods children to touch faucets, phones, doorbells, etc. Right, so this um, this bit is about the, the third type, the motor type. Um, and um, so the first um, point here is that there is a certain overlap or blurring of the oral and motor categories because um, there seems to be, at least, to some, at least for some people, um, an association between um, the the sound um, the sound image of a word and the um, the uh, kinesthetic image of pronouncing that word. So, um, like the the experiments where they asked people to um, think of the word uh, that is pronounced with your mouth in a certain position, while your mouth is actually in a different position, um, uh, and then the subjects report that they can't sort of imagine that word when their mouth is in the wrong position. Um, so the, the idea would, would be that this these subjects have a, a sort of kinesthetic auditory image. So when they um, imagine a word, they're imagining the movements that their mouth has to go through to pronounce that word. Um, and then there's this interesting question of, um, or, or maybe before I get to that, um, so the next bit is um, the idea that uh, for certain subjects, there's a motor image in the in the form of the writing of a word. Um, so you have to to be able to spell the word, you have to actually write it down. Um, and I think like what I think of here is um, like if someone asks you to um, to write down, like if if some if someone asked me, for example, to say what order the letters appear in on a keyboard, um, I would have a hard time with that. Like there's Q W E R T Y. There's that bit. And then after that, I would probably get the rest of them wrong. But at the same time, if I'm writing, I can I can actually write something without looking at the keyboard because I have a kinesthetic sense. Uh, like I know where the letters are when I'm actually writing. But if I try to visualize the letters on the keyboard, um, I can't really do it. Um, so obviously, I have a, a kinesthetic image of the location of the letters on a keyboard that I can access when I actually type. But um, I can't sort of translate that image into a, a visual image of the keyboard. Um, and then likewise, so Simon, Simon Don talks here about people who, if, the, if you ask them how to spell a word, they have to sort of go through the motion of writing it. Um, they sort of move their hands. Um, I'm moving my hand now as if you can see me, but obviously you can't. Um, <laughs> they, uh, they go through the motion of um, moving their hand as if they were writing the word. Um, uh, and this sort of helps them to remember the spelling of the word. Um, uh, so for some people, there would be, um, yeah, this kinesthetic image would be sort of predominant in a way that it isn't for other people. Um, but I think with these types in general, we should probably keep in mind that, of course, they're not going to be exclusive. Right? It's not the case that some people are exclusively visual and others are exclusively auditory and so on. Um, it would be a sort of difference of predominance or um, a difference in terms of which situations people use different images in. So some people, when they're trying to remember the spelling of a word, might use this kinesthetic image and, and sort of move their hand uh, in, the, in, in the pattern of writing the word. Um, others might, you know, picture the, the um, uh, 
you know, like a, a printed word, they might have like a visual image of the p printed word in front of them and, and use that to remember the spelling. So um, there would be differences between people in terms of which situations evoke which type of image. Um, yeah, and um, yeah, this other bit is a, a bit obscure, I think. The last part of the power graph um, where he suggests that um, it would be, so he says it would be important to analyze the characteristics of the imagery in a less sensorial and more formalized way and more logically by treating images as groups of signals. I think what he might be getting at here is the idea that um, you would want to, like if you if you were doing a systematic study of images and you know the image capacity, the capacity to form and manipulate images, what you would want to do is to see, like you, you would compare the images um, in different sensory modalities in terms of the structure of the images. So how how long does the image last? Like if you show the subject um, uh, a sequence of letters and they can remember that sequence for, say, 30 seconds, um, and, or, and then if you read a sequence of letters, can they remember that, that auditory sequence of, of letters um, for 30 seconds as well? Or like are there differences between these two sensory modalities in terms of how long the image lasts? Um, so I think that's sort of what he has in mind. It would be a sort of more structural comparison uh, between different sensory modalities and different subjects um, uh, to try to see, like, you know, how long did the images last? How stable are they? What types of errors do people make um, uh, under certain conditions and so on? Um, so, it, yeah, it would be a more formal in that sense. It would be less oriented to the specific sensory quality of these images and more... Um, related to the structure of like how how these images can be used by the subject. Um, and I'm not sure to what extent that has been done, you know, in the years since Simon Don wrote this. Uh, that would be something maybe if someone wants to do a research project for us, they could do a little investigation of that. Um, um, but then maybe the last point that I'll make here is this last uh, sentence that Simon Don points to how certain objects um, that have a a very specific use, um, like a, a faucet, um, like a, on a tap in a in a sink, um, like the these objects sort of evoke a certain type of use, and um, we the sort of kinesthetic image of turning the faucet is is sort of um, built into our visual perception of that object. We see immediately this object as like something you can turn to get water, um, and he talks about how you know kids had this sort of irresistible urge to like push buttons and you know like i think of this like when you, if you go to a museum they often have these like little exhibits where you push a button to start a, start a video or something and you see these kids run up and push the button and then run away like without even watching the video they just have this urge to push the button um uh and and so like or like you see kids that will get on an elevator and and press all the buttons um you know partly just to annoy people but like also just because they have this urge to push the button. Um, so they, they're sort of perceiving the button as like pushable, as something to be pushed. Uh, and they have this sort of irresistible urge to, to you know, perform the action that corresponds to this object. Uh, and so I think, yeah, this is like uh, an element of, of perception in any sensory modality. Um, it, it, they have these capacities to evoke actions in us. Um, and uh, and so that's what Simon Don is pointing to here. And the, these kinesthetic images can be evoked by any sensory modality. Okay. Um, so we're close to time, and we're we've lost a few people. Um, so I would suggest that we stop here for today, unless anyone else has any 
um, sort of final thoughts or questions that they want to bring up. But uh, yeah, if not, I think we can stop here for today. Yeah, I want to, I don't really have a fully formed thought on this, but uh, the idea of the kinesthetic image as being sort of prompted by the object and also the capacity of the perceiver to act on the object. It seems like this is the maybe the image is something that that individuates out of these there's like this I don't know like a maybe not attention in the object itself but certainly in the in the like the system of like the the button and the kid there is attention in the sense that the button is capable of being pushed and the kid wants to push buttons in general and so the kinesthetic image is kind of individuated out of the tension between those two terms. Does that make sense? Uh, could you say that again? Sorry, I, I wasn't distracted by something else. Uh, just that the in the the example of the kinesthetic image um, is maybe it is more obvious in the example of the kinesthetic image that the image is something that is individuated out of the this tensed system of the perceiving subject and the object that's perceived because in the in the case of the you know the object that can be turned or pushed or uh or interacted with in some way and the kid for example who generally wants to interact with uh objects in their environment there is that these two poles i guess constitute a tensed system and it's out of the, it's as a sort of partial resolution of that tension that the image is individuated. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, hmm. I think, yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, yeah, I guess, I mean, the question that Simonon raises a little bit earlier about like, what extent can we distinguish a motor habit from a motor image, I think is an interesting one in this situation, because um, like, what's distinct or one thing that's distinct about a motor image is that you can only ever experience it through time like you can't like a visual image you have sort of appear in front of you um as as something that is sort of there in one moment whereas a kinesthetic image is something that you can know you can only ever experience by sort of performing the action or imagining the action uh through time um and uh yeah so i'm not sure exactly what the connection is with with your point but that anyway um uh i think yeah it's um what exactly uh, kinesthetic? I think the kinesthetic one is is harder to picture as an image or to describe as an image than maybe the. I mean, the visual case is obviously the sort of paradigm case for an image, and then the auditory case is maybe assimil assimilatable to uh, a visual image in certain ways. But the uh, kinesthetic one is is like it seems like it feels as if you're sort of stretching the the notion of an image more in the kinesthetic case. Um, and maybe that does have to do with this um, sort of polarization that you um, are pointing to, like the visual image is something that you can sort of have in front of you in a sort of passive, not quite passive way, but like without having any particular um, uh, action associated with that image, you can just sort of contemplate the visual image, whereas the kinesthetic image is there, you can't have a sort of contemplative relation to it, you have to act or imagine yourself acting to uh, to be able to experience the kinesthetic image in the first place, uh, and maybe it's it's that sort of um, uh, 
impulsive nature of the of the kinesthetic image, the fact that it sort of pushes you to to turn the faucet or you know press the button or whatever. Um, maybe it's this that makes it harder to um, describe it as an image. Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, I guess I'm just broadly, I mean, trying to find continuities between this book and uh, the individuation dissertation. Uh, and I guess see the like the image is something that emerges out of a some kind of desperation. It seemed like a like in the case of the kinesthetic image, it uh, may be easier to picture the image as arising out of a you know desperation of these two terms. But it's probably operative in in the case of all of the images he discusses. Yeah, I think that makes sense, um, and I think. I think you're right to see, like, um, to see the production of the image as a kind of individuation. He doesn't use that vocabulary, uh, I think, very often in this book, or maybe at all. But um, and and I guess we have to remember that this was like um, a psychology lecture course, right? So it wasn't people necessarily who had any familiarity with Simon Don's system who were attending these classes. So he doesn't really um, use some of his key terminology about individuation and so on. But yeah, I think it's. Um, I think it's right to make those connections and try to um, understand the formation of an image as a kind of individuation, because an image is something uh, individuated, even if its sort of mode of individuation is different than that of like um, a living being or a crystal or whatever. Right. That makes sense. Right. Okay. So yeah, let's uh, stop here since we're pretty much at time um, and we'll pick up from page 116 next time. Um, so thanks everyone. Uh, Thanks to the people who had to leave early um, that maybe will listen after um, and uh, hope to see you all next week.